0: Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. This is Pew Bible, page 857. Here now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Guide us, O God, we pray by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light. In your truth find freedom. In your will, discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Luke locates his narrative, not in the realm of myth or legend, but in objective time. So the passage begins. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, Caesar Augustus was none other than the infamous and arrogant Octavian. If you've studied your history, you know that he defeated Antony and Cleopatra to secure his throne, and he was the first Roman emperor, or at least to refer to himself as an emperor. But he also considered himself, or at least others considered him, or at least some people considered him a deity, that he was Not only Caesar, but he was divine. What he decreed was obeyed throughout the entire empire. And at that time, that was the known world. And his decree was likely for the all-important function of, well, everybody loves it, taxes. Levying taxes, or as I like to say for this passage, registration for taxation. As Luke explains, registration required a return to one's ancestral home. A curious detail revealing the concurrence of the emperor's decree and the will of God. And so Joseph of Nazareth traveled to the city of his ancestor David. Not the kingdom of Jerusalem, but the little town of Bethlehem. And he went not alone, but with his betrothed Mary, a virgin miraculously great with child. We do not know her term, but we do know they lingered long enough in Bethlehem for the birth of Mary's firstborn. Her supernatural conception for a natural childbirth. The timing, if you think about it, was surely inconvenient. Childbirth, not at home, but away from home away from the comforting support structure of family, a time of vulnerability in a place of unfamiliarity. Yet this was the time of God's appointment. The right time. The perfect time. Luke's introduction is not without irony. Caesar, who ruled over the Roman Empire at the time of our Savior's birth, inscriptions found by archaeologists find that he was referred to as, and I quote, the Savior of the world. (laughs) He he ruled the world at that time, and, and that included the small nation of Israel. The time of Jesus' birth was a low point in the once great nation of Israel, who was neither sovereign nor free, but under Roman rule, which led to, at the time, as we know from Scripture As well as historical accounts, it led to an apathetic leadership. It also led to rebellious riots and uprisings within that country by zealots. It was also a time of renewed interest in the Messiah, or as it's translated from the Greek into English, the Christ. And it was at this time a humble Nazarene carpenter traveled all the way from home, With his pregnant fiancé who gave birth not to the fake Savior, but the true Savior. Not in a palatial prestige of Rome, but in a barn in Bethlehem. Given their circumstances, it seemed as if a bad time. In fact, it seemed as if the worst time. But given God's providential plan... It was the perfect time. There is a temptation in many of us to see God's timing as perfect when conveniently confined to the pages of Scripture, but remarkably inconvenient when it is at odds with my expectations. This leads to a dual profession in many Christians who profess God By saying, oh God, my time is in your hands. And yet live as if it is in our own. We readily agree that God is sovereign over our days. And then lament the day he gives us. In his brilliant book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Carl Truman confronts this tendency stating, and I quote, Lamentation for a lost golden age, or even for the parlous state of culture as we now face it, is popular in many conservative and Christian circles. No doubt this has its therapeutic appeal in a therapeutic time like ours, whether as a form of Pharisaic reassurance that we are not like others, or as a means of convincing ourselves that we have the special knowledge that allows us to stand above the petty enchantments and superficial pleasures of this present age. He goes on to say, But in terms of positive action, lamentation offers little and delivers less. As for the notion of some lost golden age, what past times were better than the present? an era before antibiotics, when childbirth or even minor cuts might lead to septicemia and death, the great days of the 19th century when the church was culturally powerful and marriage was between one man and one woman for life, but little children worked in factories and swept chimneys, perhaps the Great Depression, the Second World War, the era of Vietnam. Every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but as I read Truman's book, I think that part of our understanding and response included includes trusting God's sovereign orchestration of time. Sometimes we need a friend like Martin Luther who scolded his friend, cease trying to govern the world. I would assume that neither Joseph nor Mary chose Bethlehem for the place of Jesus' birth. Oh, I've got a great idea. Let's travel to a faraway town in a place that we've never lived and let's have the baby there said no pregnant woman ever, right? Often life does not unfold the way we planned, but whining about it helps no one, especially you. In fact, when we refuse to trust the Lord's timing, we blind ourselves to the blessing of seeing how He provides, and we rob ourselves of the trusting peace in His providence. There are many reasons to consider the timing of Jesus' birth as the worst of times. And yet, as the Apostle Paul puts it, Jesus was born in the fullness of time. Meaning, precisely at the right moment in history, according to God's providential direction of world events, Peoples and nations readied for the incarnation at that moment and that moment only. The incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel. It was the perfect time. And so it is. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Not Nazareth as the Pharisees presumed. And not Jerusalem according to his royal lineage, or as we might think that he would have been. But he was born in a little town of low regard. Except for this, except for the prophetic word. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." Bethlehem, the prophesied place of Christ's birth. And it became just that, didn't it? Confirming Jesus' place in the royal lineage of David. His ascension to the throne, His fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And in that place, in space and time, Not metaphorically, not merely spiritually, but literally, in space and time, a young woman gave birth. Andrew Peterson reminds us of this reality when he sings in his song, Labor of Love. It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. A newborn son, the Son of God, was greeted by the meager means of peasantry, swaddling cloths and a feeding trough for a crib. But the manger in that town... Was not by mistake. It was the exact place and nowhere else in the world that God had appointed for the birth of Jesus. In that humble place, as we sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hell, the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus. Our Emmanuel. He is God with us as we profess in the Nicene Creed. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man." And he was born in Bethlehem. It's the same one as the prophet foretold. And as we read, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He who was born in Bethlehem, who lived and died in humiliation, was resurrected and ascended in glory. He who even now, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is highly exalted and is also Present in this very place. In this very moment. Just as Bethlehem was the perfect place. Of his birth. So the temple of the assembled people of God. Is the place of his perfect presence. As he promised. I will make my dwelling place among them. And walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be My people. An Old Testament quote by the Apostle Paul to convey the reality of Christ's presence with us this very moment. Do not leave Him as a baby in a manger. As we have assembled in His name, by His Spirit, He is present. Our Emmanuel is indeed with us, both now and forever. Here's the continuation of what the prophet Micah said. In addition to Bethlehem, he foretold, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Indeed, he is Our peace, he who promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and he who promised, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so, our Lord, in his incarnation, we see the perfect time and we see the perfect place. And now, let me draw your attention to him as the perfect provision. From the lowly place of Jesus' birth, Luke now shifts his narrative to the fields where humble shepherds watch over their flocks by night. According to tradition, these fields were used for the animals raised and grazed for temple sacrifices. And if that's true, I think that's a fascinating tie-in with the announcement of the birth of the Lamb of God. But whether this is the case or not, the keeping of sheep is the point. And let me explain. Harking back to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah said this in an often forgotten passage. In this place that is waste, without man or beast, and all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds. "'Resting their flocks in the cities of the hill country. "'Flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them,' says the Lord." Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in his hand. The last part of that passage in Jeremiah sounds familiar to us. The first part doesn't. In other words... Let me just bring that forward for you. What the prophet is saying is, when Israel returns after the Babylonian captivity and resettles the land, one of the things that is going to happen is, is there's going to be shepherds who are tending sheep out on the fields. And that is a sign of the coming of the promised one. In prophetic language, uniting the characteristics of Christ. First coming and his second coming, we hear the introduction to the heir of the throne of David, and it begins with what? It begins with shepherds resting their flocks, which is actually funny, I think. I mean, how absurd. The grand announcement of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is to some cowboys. In fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, on the night of Jesus' birth, there were indeed habitations of shepherds resting their flocks, who I might add, have no idea what's getting ready to happen, do they? And so Luke recounts that at the perfect time and in the perfect place, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. They are not of noble birth, or profession, but are the first to receive the angelic good news of great joy. The Lord, think about this, the Lord could have sent His angel to the civil authority of Caesar Augustus, or the governor Quirinius, or King Herod, or He could have sent the angel to the religious authority of the high priest Caiaphas, or the assembly of the Sanhedrin. But He didn't. He sent His angel to the unknown shepherds. Name one of them, can you? You can't. Shepherds of low regard, like you, like me, to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the Virgin Mary responded to the angel's proclamation, she sang forth, what we refer to as the Magnificat. And in that, she said these words, The Lord has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So the lowly shepherds were exalted on that night, hearing the gospel. And receiving this good news, Paul reminds you, and Paul reminds me, And while you and I, at this time of year, sing the first Noel the angels did say was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay, the tranquility of that carol is surely not in keeping with the startling, sudden appearance of the supernatural. In the ordinary rhythm, I would imagine, I don't know this by experience, but in the ordinary rhythm of a shepherd's dark night... An explosion of light, captivating their attention, I would imagine, would sense the less healthy into cardiac arrest. The glory of the Lord shone around them, Scripture says. And so startling was this glory of the Lord when it was revealed at Solomon's dedication of the temple. Do you remember how the people responded? They didn't jump up and say, yay, God is my homeboy. No, they fell prostrate on the ground, noses on the pavement in worship. And so here is the understatement of understatements from the passage today. Here it is, wait for it. Understatement of understatements. Quote, the shepherds were filled with great fear. You think? <laughs> but the gospel is never given to leave us wallowing in fear. The gospel is never given to us to cower in terror, but to believe the good news of great joy and to respond in joyful obedience. And so the, angels, the angel says to the terrified shepherds, Thankfully, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. One of the curious characteristics of the angel's announcement to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth is the sudden appearance of, look at verse 13, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. And I think about this from the shepherd's perspective. Surely the appearance of one angel was enough. Surely the good news of great joy was good enough. But as soon as the angel announced these words, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. As soon as the angel said, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, the sky is filled with a multitude of the heavenly host, a sudden explosion of angelic presence and praise. It was as if they were waiting with anticipation for the announcement. Awaiting the moment to to appear and to and to praise, not to show merely not to show up merely just to be seen, but to sing glory to God in the highest, on on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The Apostle Peter says that this good news of great joy to the shepherds and then onward to you and to me was the mission of the Old Testament prophets, and was of primary interest to angels, but both the Old Testament prophets and the angels were required to wait, to wait for what Paul called the fullness of time. In delivering this pastoral proclamation and praise, the angels appeared in that moment not as omniscient celestial beings, but as worshipers. Worshippers awaiting God's redemptive revelation. And as Christ was incarnate, living, dying, and resurrecting, the revelation of the good news became richer and became fuller until finally, as the writer of a of this Paul puts it, the manifold, the manifold, the manifold wisdom of God was revealed in Christ's church. And witnessed, not only by us, but by the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The very thing that the prophets had awaited. The very thing that the angels longed to see. They finally saw in what Christ has done in His church. We often think of the sudden Supernatural appearance of the heavenly host in relation to Jesus' birth. And I might add, rightly so. But in a sense, their explosion of praise was but a commencement of our continued celebration. Think about it. On that night, the angelic announcement and following praise was the commencement that we carry on, we carry on this very day. For we are not waiting like the Old Testament saints or even the angels. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son and has revealed His redemptive purposes in His church. And so I say to you on this Christmas morning, let the angelic chorus continue. Glory to God in the highest Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. Risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark! The herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the perfect gift of Jesus Christ. And we thank you the very thing that you created us to do, that is to glorify you and enjoy you forever, you have enabled in the gift of Christ. Oh God, may we continue to be faithful worshipers of you. May we be a people who looks not merely to the topic of Christ's incarnation once a year, but may we continue to dwell upon the perfect life, the sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection, the glorious ascension, the anticipation of His coming in all of this living and rejoicing in what Christ has done for us, His people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.